got to tell you, I love Grace Community Church. I come in, I try to get here around 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and there are already, our music team's usually already here, and our tech team, making things happen, working, putting everything together, and just love this place. And whether you're sitting in or whether you're tuning in, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Christmas, boy, it, it's here. I mean, it's, it's on us, right? The time we celebrate the birth of Christ, our Savior, Savior of the world. And just what a great, great time. And, and I know some of you, you are you're locked and loaded. I mean, you are ready to go, right? Some of you are set. Who's ready? And, 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 and a lot of us hate you people, but... So, and then some of us, we're not quite ready. You know, we're, who, who's, oh, come on. Who's not ready? Yeah, uh, boy, it kind of snuck up. Yeah, Christmas, it's a great time. Actually, we found out that Christmas time is probably the best time of the year in our culture, in our locality, to invite people to church. And so we encourage you to do that over these next couple weeks, and we're going to have a great time together. Do that where you invite them to, if some people are out and about, invite them to come and sit in, and if they're not out and about, invite them to tune in, and uh, we're going to have a great time together. Boy, it, it's here, it's, it's on us, and we've changed our tradition a little bit this year. How, how many of you have the real tree? First of all, how many of you have a tree up, all right? How many of you have a real tree how many fake tree? Wow, way more. See, we made the transition this year. Kids are, you know, they're independent. They're gone. They got their own families. And, uh, and so we went with the fake tree for the first time. I don't know, Pam. I don't know if it's going to work or not. Jury's still out. We're trying to figure, we're kind of late this year. We're trying to adjust. We'll see how that goes. But it's, it's, this is just the time that there's so much going on. And, and I know a lot of people are thinking, wow, I, I'm just short on time. This, who knew Christmas was going to be the 25th of December this year? I mean, it just, it came, you know, it's, it's on us. And we don't have much time left. And, you know, here, here's the thing. Don't let tradition or busyness or even religion, don't let tradition, business, or even religion keep you from focusing on Jesus during this Christmas time. Jesus came to wreck religion because religion becomes an external barrier to us having an internal heart relationship with God. And that's what I want to talk about today, and that's what I want to unpack for you, how Jesus comes to wreck religion. We have a series we're starting today called Wreck the Halls, and Jesus came to wreck religion, he came to wreck us, and he came to wreck culture, and today we're talking about wrecking religion. I know that sounds a little different, just hang, hang with me. When Jesus was born, the center of religion for the Jewish people, for God's people, was the temple. The temple was the center of religion, but Temple worship became an exterior barrier to people really following God. And the first time we see Jesus in the, at the temple is during the Christmas story. It's right after, just days after his birth. 
Joseph and Mary take Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. That's in the shadow of the temple, just six miles from the temple in Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary take Jesus up to the temple, and they make a sacrifice. Because Old Testament law required that for the firstborn male child, that you would give it a sacrifice, and the sacrifice was a lamb. And the reason they had that written into the law was because of something that happened way back in their history when God delivered Israel from Egypt. And so just side note, if you remember the story, God has Moses and they're leading the people out and the Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go. And then so God sends the plagues on Egypt to kind of loosen Pharaoh's grip. And then Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. And then at the very end, do you remember what happened? The last plague? The last plague was the death of all firstborn males. That was the last plague. It was devastating on the whole land. But then God said to God's people, you can be spared from the death of the firstborn if you sacrifice a lamb, kill a lamb, take its blood, and spread it on the doorposts of your home. And so the faithful Israelites did that, and they were spared. And actually, then through the centuries, because of the law, then every time a firstborn male was born, they would make this sacrifice of a lamb to commemorate what happened back when they were delivered from Egypt. So that's what's happening. They go up to the temple in Jerusalem. When they get there, uh, they go in to make the sacrifice. But one added detail that we find out in the text is that there was an exception to be made for couples who were too poor to afford a lamb. And that was the case of Mary and Joseph. They were very poor. And just to get your Christmas chronology right, this actually happens before the visit of the wise men because they were actually given gifts. But that actually happened several months after his birth. This is all before that. So they're poor. They don't have the money for a lamb. And then the law allows, if you can't afford a lamb, that you can either sacrifice two pigeons or two doves instead, in place of a lamb if you can't afford it. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph did because Jesus was born into a poor family. And that kind of reminds me a lot of times in this season because we, uh, in our culture, we celebrate Christmas giving gifts to people, which is a great uh, tradition, great celebration. But sometimes it can wear on us. I know there are times in my past, and this could be true of you now, that you're out shopping or you're looking online or whatever the case may be, and, and, and you want to get the perfect gift for the people that you care about, and then you're just, you kind of get bummed out because you don't have enough. Like you feel like, wow, I wish I was more, you know, had more finances so I could really get a better gift for these people that I care about, and, and we do all that. And sometimes we can feel a little bummed or a little sorry for ourselves or something like that. You know, I've been there years, years ago, and so I get that, but I want you to know this. When Jesus came to earth, he identified with, if you don't have any resources, he identified with you first. Because at his birth, remember, he was poor. Remember little drummer boy, not biblical, but drummer boy, son, I am a poor boy too. You know, too. Jesus is poor. So anyway, um, what happened next at the temple is completely un unexpected. 
They go up into the temple. They're probably in line at the temple. Maybe there's a few other couples who had also given birth, because this is true of all Israel. They're pretty close, but not everybody is. So you travel to the temple, and they're in line, and they're ready to go. And then all of a sudden, this guy, Simeon, who doesn't really belong in the temple, but he lives in Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple. He's very devout, focused on God. And he sort of jumps out of the crowd, grabs the baby Jesus, holds him up and starts praising God that he has come and he's the savior of the world. And I don't know about you, but if that were me, Pam and I, you know, it'd be like, whoa, back off, man. You know, it kind of freak you out a little bit, right? This guy comes, grabs your kid, grabs your baby. And so that happens. And, uh, and then here's Simeon, this guy Simeon. He's saying, hey, th- this Finally, God had told him he wouldn't die before he saw the Messiah, and he proclaims Jesus the Savior of the world. And then after that, they go a little further. They run into a prophetess named Anna, a lady that's there at the temple. She's actually been widowed and been serving for decades at the temple as a widowed lady, and she recognizes Jesus as well. And so we get a little bit of her story. But here's what, here is the temple, the center of religious worship. And ironically, all these temple rituals, they actually existed to help people recognize the Messiah when he came. And that all this stuff happening at the temple, it's all looking forward to the Messiah. But most of the people there, besides Simeon and Anna, they completely miss Jesus. They completely missed the significance of his birth. Didn't recognize him, didn't get it. Because it was the exact opposite than what they were expecting, right? They know the Messiah is the true king. So they're expecting Messiah to come and that he's going to be born of royalty. He's not going to be born in a stable. He's going to have rich parents, not parents who can't even afford the traditional sacrifice for his birth. And so they completely miss it. They were religious, but they completely missed Jesus. And the same thing happens today. People who consider themselves even Christians and and celebrate the religious aspects of Christmas sometimes can do that. They get into a routine and, and they could miss Christmas because it becomes just something they do. It, it's, it becomes religious. It's something they do. They, they have routines. They believe in God. They're decent people. They follow the rules. They go to church a few times a year, you know, check, 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 check. And they have this feeling, I'm good with God because I'm acknowledging all this stuff. But religion it always ends up becoming just a list of things we do. It becomes a routine. It becomes a, what we do to get to heaven at the end. Happens a lot today. And that's what was happening then. All right, the next thing that happens with Jesus as he interacts with the temple that's the center of religion is that we find out when he was 12, Jesus is taken to the temple by his parents. Now, We don't know, this is the only record we have of the childhood of Jesus. Besides his birth, and then his public ministry begins when he's 30, right here, 12 years old, right in the middle of that, we have this snapshot 
that he's taken to the temple. Now what's happening is the temple is celebrating Passover, and good Jewish people were supposed to try to make it there, especially uh, Jewish men. They try to get to, the, to, the, to Jerusalem to worship God by celebrating Passover, which is celebrating the same event that I just told you about, that they sacrificed a lamb for the firstborn son. You know, same thing. And so what would happen is because in that day, traveling was sort of dangerous. A lot of robbers on the road, and things could happen to you. So little villages would get together, and everybody that was going up to Jerusalem would go at the same time, and they would caravan to Jerusalem. They would go in a group. And that's what happened at Nazareth, was where Jesus is living. Jesus and his parents and then other families got together, and then they travel several days' journey to Jerusalem. We're also told that when this happened, Jesus is 12 years old, and that's kind of significant. Remember, 12, and then when you turn 13, that in Jewish society, Jewish culture, that's when a child, a boy, became a man. And so when he was taken to Jerusalem, Jesus was, this would be a special time of mentoring when he is 12 years old. It's the last time he's going to be in Jerusalem before he turns 13. And so typically this would be an intense time of mentoring by the Father. And we could just imagine how this might have played out. They get to Jerusalem. Maybe Joseph spends an extra amount of time with Jesus. They walk through the streets. He's talking about Jerusalem. They walk by the temple. Uh, Joseph explains the significance of the temple to Jesus. Uh, They celebrate Passover at some point. And so Joseph is careful, not that they just observe Passover, but that Jesus understands the significance of the lamb, which represents the blood that was shed, you know, all that that we just talked about. A Passover, he would, you know, specifically want him to know. So that's kind of why it happens. But then here's, here's what happens. When it's time to go on the day of departure, Everybody from Nazareth, they they get together outside the walls of Jerusalem at their predetermined place they're going to meet, and then they caravan home. And so they do that. Well, they get about a day's journey away from Jerusalem, and then they realize what? Jesus isn't with them. And some of you are thinking, bad parenting, you know, a day. But Jesus is 12. He must have been pretty obedient. They weren't worried about it. You know, he could kind of take care of himself. And, and they're traveling with everybody they know, friends and family. So they didn't think that much about it. But when nighttime came, where they would kind of gather as a family, Jesus is missing. So the parents, then they travel a day's journey back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. And then they spend an entire day looking for Jesus before they find him. And then they find him where? In the temple, the center of religion. And that's where I'm going to pick it up in Luke 2, 46. Then, a day out, a day back, a day searching. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, talking about Jesus, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, that's his parents, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, here it comes, right? He's in trouble, right? Here it comes. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? 
Behold, your father, and now it gets serious, right? Your father and I, she's bringing in the guns. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. So, so they're scolding Jesus. And then Jesus' response to this is amazing. He's 12 years old. Here's what he says, verse 49. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And so we're listening to this, and, and the first thing that's interesting about his response is when he says, in my father's house, we recognize that father can be a term for God. And even other religions can have the term father as referring to God. But just know, in the first century, that didn't happen. People didn't refer to God as father. That was something new. That didn't really happen much in the Old Testament. It's kind of a unique concept. So he says, hey, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, there's a theory here that I want to share with you, but I have to differentiate it. Normally, when I'm telling you things and teaching through the Bible, I'm telling you stuff I know that the Bible is saying. Here I want to share something that I think this may be the case, all right? Is that all right with everybody? So you don't have to believe this. You don't have to buy it. I'm not, this is not the Word of God. This is Kevin's opinion, all right, that I got from somebody smarter than me. So anyway, this is, this is the way this goes. It could be, maybe, not for sure, maybe, that Jesus stays these three days in Jerusalem, maybe so he could be mentored by his heavenly father, his real father. And maybe during those three days, he walked the streets of Jerusalem with his heavenly father, and his heavenly father told him, you know, you're walking these streets. There's coming a day when you'll be walking these same streets carrying a cross. And maybe he walked Jesus up by the temple and said, yeah, look at the temple. One day this temple will be gone, and actually you are the new temple. You will replace the temple as the center of worship. And then maybe as they passed by other families, because it was Passover time, and they were talking about the lamb and the significance of the lamb, maybe his heavenly father told Jesus, and you are the once and for all lamb, the once and for all sacrifice, the Savior of the world, and anyone who's covered by your blood will be saved forever. Maybe. But the, the thing is, is Jesus wasn't born to improve or perfect religion. He was born to make a way for us to have a real relationship with God apart from religion. Jesus comes to wreck religion because religion always drifts to the external. Religion has a tendency to always become something we do. And Israel saw this happen to them through the generations from the law and the whole idea of the temple all the way through the generations to the first century when Jesus is there at his birth and when he's 12 years old. And it happens in churches as well. 
later in his life, and we don't know anything about the intervening years, but when Jesus is around 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. He steps into the limelight. And one of the first things he does is he returns to Jerusalem. John records this for us. When he gets to Jerusalem, as he begins his public ministry, one of the first things he does is he goes to the temple and he clears the temple. He drives out all the money changers, all the animal stuff that's happening. He drives them all out of the temple. He does it with a whip. Serious stuff. And then we know, because Jesus' ministry only lasted about three years, that three years later, during the very week of his crucifixion, the last week that he was there, he triumphantly entered Jerusalem as some people were proclaiming him king. And when he got back to Jerusalem again, he went into the temple and he clears the temple. Well, what's going on there? Here's what it says. That's where we pick it up in the second cleansing in Luke 19, 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and he quotes a verse from Isaiah, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. What's happening during both times, with three years in between, is that the religion that centered at the temple, you had to go there and you would give offerings or give sacrifices. So you'd bring offerings and sacrifices. You'd bring money or animals like a lamb that we talked about before. But they had made some rules at the temple to say you couldn't use Roman money to give an offering at the temple. It's just a rule they made. Well, because that was the common money and usage, everybody used it. They then would have people who would convert money, money exchangers, they would convert money into shekels, which was Jewish money, and then they would do that at a rate, and they would sort of make money off of that. And then when you brought your animal to be sacrificed, it was supposed to be an unblemished animal, and so then you had to have animal inspectors there who would say, well, your animal's not good enough, but for a few bucks, we can give you a temple-approved animal over here. So you exchanged your animals and you exchanged your money and you did that. It was just a systemic way, a way for the system to take advantage of poor people. And Jesus would have none of it. And he goes in and he changes all that. He, he wipes that out. Because temple worship became a religious exercise with no heart relationship, no heart connection with God. And that's the problem with religion. Actually, Jesus deals with this issue in a parable that he told. It's a parable that a lot of you have heard before, probably. It's a parable about two guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it's in Luke 18, same book, in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Here's how it starts. He says, and so here's Jesus talking. He says, and he, all, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So right away we're told he tells a parable. And who did he tell it to? He told it to people who thought they were pretty good people and tended to look down on other people who weren't pretty good people. So that's kind of the way that goes. And, and so this is for all people who think, hey, I'm good with God. I got everything worked out with God. But these other people, it's a little sketch. So 
Religion can so infiltrate our hearts that it even corrupts how we talk to God. Because now this parable is going to be about these two people going to the temple, the center of religion, in order to connect with God. And so there's two guys. It starts in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So it's your typical two-guy story here, all right? You got a Pharisee and you got a tax collector. Now, here's the deal. Today, when we hear Pharisee, we think, oh, bad guy. We think that because we know that it was Pharisees that, had, that were kind of opposed to a lot of Jesus' ministry, and that's all we know about the Pharisees. That's not the way people viewed the Pharisees in the first century. In the first century, when Jesus told this parable, the Pharisees were seen by all the people as the good guys. Because the Pharisees were the only people in all, of all the Jewish people that actually committed to following every single point of the Old Testament law. And they did everything. I mean, they would, everything they did would be within the bounds of the Old Testament law. They would never stray. They would follow every rule. They were so serious about following every rule that they would pile up other rules to make sure they didn't even get close to the line and accidentally cross the line and break a rule. Do you know what I mean? It, it would be like, um, uh, here, about a week and a half ago, Pam and I, we took a trip out to Colorado. It's actually my mom's 90th birthday. And so it was a covert operation and we surprised her, and we all got out there. Everybody was there, and so we surprised her for her 90th. The amazing thing is, we checked, and we found that we can fly from Detroit to Denver and back to Detroit for $45. A round-trip ticket across the United States, 45 bucks. Can you believe that? So obviously, we decided to drive my pickup. And so we're, we decided, you know, I didn't want like the government or the airlines or anybody else tell me when I couldn't go or come back or whatever. So we drive. Now, here's the thing about driving. I like driving. The problem with driving is I want to get there as fast as I would as if I was flying. And so that's the issue. And so probably like a lot of you, what I, mass confession time, because I want to be hanging out here by myself. How many of you, like me, when you're growing on the interstate, set the cruise control a little higher than the speed limit, right? Okay, we all do that. So I've learned over the years, so now I only set it for like four miles over, you know, but it used to be worse. So we all do that, right? We are rule breakers, by the way. A Pharisee would never do that. As a matter of fact, if the speed limit was 65, a Pharisee would go 60 at first, but then he would make a rule that no Pharisee should go over 50 because who knows, if you were going 60 and your speedometer said 60, maybe you got new tires and that threw your speedometer off and you're actually going 66, you would break the law. So they would add other rules, hey, you should only go 50 to make sure you didn't even come close to breaking the rule of going 65. That's a Pharisee, right? I'm telling you, that's a Pharisee. This is not one of those, I think this is the way. I'm telling you, this is a Pharisee. That's the way they operated, right? So that's, a, and they, 
They were the only people. And so people would look at them and go, how do you do it? How do you orientate your entire life to every behavior you do is within the law. It's almost impossible. They had a great reputation with the people. They were all just like, wow. They might be like, I don't want to be one of those guys, but they're like, wow. The other guy is a tax collector. And they even hated them worse than we hate them. A tax collector in the first century was considered a traitor to the people. He was a collaborator with the occupying Roman force. These people had a license to extract money from honest, hardworking families. And they could basically take as much money as they could get out of families because there wasn't a lot of rules about how much money you taxed people. It was pretty much whatever you could get. And then you had to give some of it to Rome and you got to keep all the extra and they were rich. They had the worst reputations. So best reputation in their culture, Pharisee, we don't see it that way today, but that's how it was. And worst reputation. A tax collector, if the speed limit was 65, he would drive 100, and if he got pulled over and he got a ticket he wouldn't carry, he would just pay it because he could afford it. It wouldn't matter. Two guys. They both come up to pray. Verse 11 says, A Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Interesting wording. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. Now notice, he's praying to God at the temple. But everything is focused on his external behavior. He's saying, hey, I, I follow the rules. I don't commit adultery. I don't rob God. I give God a tenth of everything that I get. I, and then he's saying, hey, I follow all these rules. Then he throws in, and I fast twice a week. That wasn't even a rule. He's like, yeah, I've kept all the rules, and I fast twice a week. I've done more than the law requires, is what he's praying. Completely focused on his behavior, because at that point, in Israel's history, the temple religion had devolved into that sin was only something that you did, that sin could never be a thought or an intention or a motivation. Sin was always on the outside, never on the inside. That's why he prayed that way. Of course, Jesus came and taught us that we can break the law of God by how we think how we're motivated, what our intentions are, what our desires are, that we break God's law on the inside before it even shows up in our behavior. Now, his prayer, the Pharisee's prayer, has no confession, no praise to God, no real thanks to God. He, that's the way he's praying. He thinks he's gone beyond the law. God owes him. He's covering up the inside of his life with the outside. I remember when Pam and I, our, our, the first house we, we bought was up north of town in, a, in Shorewood Village, if you know where that is. And we bought a little house there. And the previous owners had 19 dogs. And then they kept their cats on the second floor. We, I don't know how many. I don't think people really count cats. They just kind of, you know, but the dogs, 19 dogs, 
an unnamed number of cats, second floor. And so when we went in there, we were cleaning all that up. And of course, you know, everything was stained and smelled. And, you know, the bottom floor was just bare concrete. It was a slab house. And, but this top, you know, we ripped up the carpet and everything. And then, you know, I don't know if you ever noticed it with pets, but sometimes, you know, the wood floors will get kind of wet and it does not dry out. It's kind of oily, wet, and stinky. And it just stays there for months and months and months. So we replaced some of that flooring. But here's what we decided to do. We got a sealer called Kills, or I think we use Bin Sealer. Do you know what that is? Big bucket of Kills Sealer. And then we just went over every surface in the house, even the floor. We bin sealed the floor, the walls, the ceiling, everything. We just sealed it all up. And then we painted it. And then it was like our house was fresh. I mean, it was great. Of course... All those stains were still there. We just covered them, right? And all those smells were actually still there. They were just locked in. And you're probably expecting me to tell me, and then about a year later. No, it actually lasted. I mean, it was just great. It looked good. Smelled good. Only we knew what was inside those walls. And that's how people view religion. It... People use a thin coat of religion over their lives to cover up the stuff that's on the inside, the stuff that's in our heart. The problem with that is unlike our house, nobody knew, God knows our hearts. So that does not work. Every other religion is about following rules to somehow earn favor with God. And, and in almost every religion, Religion, you never know when you've crossed the line to be okay with God. And, and here, Scripture's telling us that no amount of following rules can earn us any entitlement with God. And, and we live in an entitlement culture. Everybody owes us. And we think through religion or through being good or through our behavior, we think we can make God owe us. Nothing makes God owe us. We see it all the time. I know some of you are probably going, ah, I don't know about that. Think about it. Anytime something terrible happens to someone, what do people say? Why? Why, God? Why could you? How could you allow this to happen to me? How could you allow this bad thing to happen to my life? Well, what's the assumption there? I don't deserve this. You owe me better than this. God owes us nothing. It come, we don't think that way as a culture, but it's inside us and it comes out in the big crisis times in our lives. Jesus came to say it's not about religion, it's about heart relationship. Look how it continues, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus wraps it in the next verse, verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's interesting to see this story that Jesus told play out in your mind because typically a tax collector would never show himself in the temple because people hated him. So in your mind, it would be a guy that kind of comes in into the temple grounds and maybe he's just on the very outer edge of the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles, and he won't even lift his eyes. 
He just says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, and it's interesting because different translations do this different ways. Some say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Some say, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's because of a lot of translations don't want to translate the article because it's kind of rough in English. Be merciful to me, the sinner. It should be me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. But no, he's saying awkwardly, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the what is really there. That's what your translation should read. The sinner. And what's he saying? He's not saying he's the worst sinner, like some people think. But, and he's not comparing himself to other people. He's saying, God, be merciful to me. The sinner, I have nothing. I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to bring to you. I don't have anything to account for my life. I need your mercy. I'm totally dependent on your mercy. And then the other thing that's curious about what he says in Jesus' story is he says, be merciful. The, the weird thing about that is this is not the normal word that is normally translated into the English word mercy. This is an obscure word for mercy, a different word that we might translate some other way if we had a better word in English, which we don't. But this word for mercy has to do with the atonement. It's give me mercy as I recognize it's a cost. Give me payment. Give me atonement. Take care of me. Do for me something costly to allow me to be okay. It's the atonement language that's in here. Be merciful. He's not saying let me off. He's not saying overlook my sin. He's saying atone for my sin. I know it will involve, it will involve cost, but atone, pay for my sin. God, be merciful. No self-congratulations. No list of good deeds, no sense God owes him, no self-confidence. It's a prayer of a broken man who pleads for mercy. And that's the way we should all be as we come to Christ for forgiveness. And so in the story, and all the people are listening to Jesus, the tax collector receives forgiveness and the good Pharisee with the great reputation does not receive forgiveness. You catching that? The bad guy gets mercy. He gets atonement. He is declared righteous. That's what justified means. He's declared righteous. And the good guy is not declared righteous. That's what's happening here. The good man is lost, and the bad man is saved. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. He was born to wreck religion. Don't go through the religious ritual of Christmas and miss a heart connection with Jesus. Don't do that. Don't go through this Christmas season and miss the most important message of Christmas. Jesus came for us. 
And if you're already a Christian, don't go through this Christmas season without helping others to see the main message of Christmas because we live in a culture that's forgotten what Christmas is all about. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for the joy that Christmas brings that sinners like us can be forgiven. We can fall on your mercy. We cannot earn it. You cannot owe it to us. We are not entitled. Lord, we are the sinner. And we come to you totally dependent on your mercy. And God, joyously, you give mercy to people who come and ask, who admit their sin and turn to God. That's why we're forgiven, not because we deserve it. And God, that's why the Christmas time is so joyous for us. Lord, help us to celebrate the real meaning of Christmas and help others to do the same. In Christ's name we pray, amen.